and I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. And today on the show, we are going to be talking about nothing. Well, we're going to be talking about something, but the something that we're talking about is about nothing. And all will become clear throughout the episode, right, Tim? Yeah, that's right. It's a show about nothing. If anyone's familiar with that Seinfeld episode where uh, they spent a lot of time talking about the details of nothing to the point where it kind of sounds like they have something. Uh, that's sort of what we're doing. So, yeah, it's going to be a bit more involved than what it sounds like and hopefully be enjoyable and informative as we go. And I'm hoping that we're going to get some better quality audio uh, from here on in when we do the show. I've got to apologise for the the sound quality we were getting in our first couple of episodes. It was cool to hang out in the shed in my backyard where we recorded the first two episodes, but the sound quality did suffer as a result. We needed a good environment for video and pictures to get us started with publicity material, so that's why we were doing that. So, yeah, apologies if the sounds of birds and dogs and low-flying aircraft and people mowing their lawns was distracting for you. We're learning and improving as we go here. We, we certainly are, but it just shows that we are surrounded by Western Australian life. And it was good to hang out with you, of course. So our focus on this podcast is on developing a biblical worldview rather than a post-Christian worldview. And that's why we're getting into creation at the beginning. Always a good place to start. This episode is a series on prime evil history, Genesis 1 to 11, uh, which was a foundational text that framed the interpretation of the rest of Scripture for Jews and for Christians. And the idea is to consider what the text meant to its first audience, uh, and also what it meant to believers in the exilic period. I don't know if I'm saying that, but Tim will correct me. And throughout the second temple period, which covers the time uh, in which the New Testament was written. So last time we talked about creation myths of the ancient New East uh, on the first couple of episodes, which is very fascinating. And today we're looking at the very concept of existence, which is a big concept to cover. Yeah, well, hopefully uh, we won't get too down in philosophy or anything like that but certainly in terms of what ancient people had in mind when they spoke about nothingness or the lack of existence made me think can you picture nothing can you imagine what it is to see to behold nothing i think that we as modern people in the west tend to view things in terms of materialism naturalism empiricism we're always talking about stuff and for us, existence is defined by physical properties and measurable phenomena. Something exists if it's visible or tangible. Perhaps we can see, uh, hear, smell, taste it. That, that's how we know something exists. Getting more technical, perhaps we can use available data to show theoretically that something exists. Maybe as we sharpen our observational skills, we can perceive something that we previously only theorised about. Our definition of creation is basically to cause something to exist. Which sounds pretty straightforward until we learn that for ancient people, existence itself had a different definition to the one I just mentioned that we hold today. And that in turn changes our idea of what it means to create something. You see, without the science of observation, we have no evidence of existence or of existential possibilities. This creates a conundrum for us as Christians when we're forced to make an exception for God and write it off as faith. It should be the first indication of thinking believers that perhaps our definition of existence needs to change 
in order to get a correct definition of creation and to be able to account for the unseen. Before we can talk about creation or even about existence, we should start with non-existence. For us, the concept of nothing is a void, a vacuum in which material of any kind is entirely absent. Nothing means literally no thing. Well said, as always. So let's think about and talk about the, the ancient concept of nothing. Did they perceive it in the same way? And would Abraham have thought of non-existence in the same way that we do? Well, when we study ancient creation texts, one thing that stands out consistently is that for the most part, they don't begin from absolute zero. Nearly every creation text has stuff already there before the work of creation begins. And we saw this when we looked at pagan texts last time. Remember last time I closed by mentioning a traitor and his grain of sand from the never-ending story. But what does the Bible say? And by what does it say? I mean, look at the words on the page. What's there and what isn't? Let's not theologize here. We can do that later. Now we want to see what's in the text. And here it is, Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now I have the NIV there because it would be familiar to many listeners, but it really doesn't matter which mainstream Bible version you pick. They all make a common choice. They start with, in the beginning. Now I've got another translation here by Robert Alter, which I think is a bit more accurate. It says, when God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep and God's breath hovering over the waters. And another one here uh, from the Jewish Publication Society in their Tanakh. Uh, it has this, when God began to create heaven and earth, the earth being unformed and void, with darkness over the surface of the deep and a wind from God sweeping over the water. So you note the first phrase in those two translations, when God began. Not only is this grammatically correct according to the Hebrew, it preserves an important aspect of this passage's cultural identity as a creation text. Uh, look at some of those other ones that we looked at last time. Uh, Atrahasis, for example, uh, starts with when the gods. And Inumelish starts with when on high. It's introducing something there. Mm, it's fascinating to... to understand that. So you're saying that the, the biblical story begins in the same way as these other texts? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's not to say that the Bible is derivative or forged or unoriginal. It just fits in its cultural context because it's a product of that cultural context. Uh, but you'll notice that it is a Mesopotamian context. The Egyptian texts don't start like that. The Ugaritic texts don't start like that either. We'll discuss that more as we go in future episodes uh, concerning the context. Already in this text, we've got heavens, earth, darkness, the deep, and the waters, all external to the existence of God Himself, who we know theologically and philosophically was there even before that stuff. But do you see that it doesn't say that there was no material present in the universe? And this is not to say that creation from nothing is wrong. But if you're going to argue for a materialistic, uh, creatio ex nihilo, to use the Latin, 
you need to forget Genesis 1 as your base text because it isn't there in the material sense. That's where you need to brush up on your philosophy and your theology of God's attributes. That road will take you to a genuine creatio ex nihilo, but Genesis 1 does not. So we're two verses in and all this matter is already there without explanation. We haven't even got to the first act of God. We're not even in day one yet. So how can scriptures say, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them? Isn't that contradictory? I guess that depends on how you would define existence. Yeah, well, let's think of existence like this. Say I decide to open a business and I want to have a coffee shop. I have the idea. But do I have a coffee shop? No. So I raise the money to get started. But do I have a coffee shop? No. I register a business name. I get approvals from city council. But do I have a coffee shop? No. I build a store, I fit out the kitchen, I buy furniture, I decorate. Do I have a coffee shop yet? No. I hire staff. I train them. They make great coffee. Do I have a coffee shop yet? No. I get inspected by the health department. They give me a certificate of compliance. Do I have a coffee shop yet? No. It's opening day. Doors are open. Staff are on duty. There's a sign out the front. Do I have a coffee shop yet? No. So where do you have a coffee shop? Are you waiting for uh, Jennifer Aniston and her friends to show up? <laughs> a Seinfeld and a friend's reference all in one episode. Oh, there you go. There you go. We're living in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, when, when do I have a coffee shop? When I'm in business. All of that stuff, all the work, all the paperwork and the planning and the preparation, you know, they mean nothing if I don't sell coffee you see the connection the, the the stuff means nothing if it doesn't perform its function if i'm not selling coffee i'm not in business all of that material and everything else is of no importance if it doesn't make money for me yeah, coffee for you simply doesn't exist it doesn't even exist if i have a coffee shop out in the middle of nowhere because it needs to function as part of a larger system to truly exist as the apostle paul said in his description of the church as the body of christ part doesn't function on its own. Never seen a corner store that got built when a new housing estate was released and then the houses didn't sell. That store ceases to exist. And that's how ancient people thought of existence. To bring something into existence is not to build a coffee shop. If you can't get a coffee, then as far as you're concerned, there is no coffee shop. Bringing something into existence is about making it useful, making it work. If it doesn't work, it doesn't exist. All of that stuff is already there when the story starts. That doesn't mean matter is eternal. What it does mean is that Genesis 1 is not telling us the story of how God brought matter into physical being. That means when Genesis gives us creatio ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing, what it means is creation out of that which is regarded from our cultural perspective as being non-existent. That is what it means to create nothing according to the text of Genesis 1. Now, pop out of Genesis for a second. Here's a passage from Jeremiah 4, verses 23 to 26. I looked at the earth, 
and it was formless and empty. And at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. We'll just hang on to that one, and I've got another one from Isaiah 34, and verses 8 through 15. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulphur. Her land will become blazing pitch. It will not be quenched night or day, and smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate. No one will ever pass through it again. The desert owl and screech owl will possess it. The great owl and the raven will nest there. God will stretch out over Edom the measuring line of chaos and the plumb line of desolation. Her nobles will have nothing there to be called a kingdom. All her princes will vanish away. Thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a horn for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas, wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. The owl will nest there and lay eggs. She will hatch them and care for her young under the shadow of her wings. There also the falcons will gather each with its mate. Quite a long one that you could almost uh, take lessons in uh, ornithology, I think, from there. <laughs> <laughs> Very uh, right, so both of the above passages have something in common with Genesis 1 and 2. They are the only three places in Scripture where we find bohu, the Hebrew word used in parallel with tohu. And we read tohu abohu in English, we get formless and void, or as Robert Alter translates to maintain the field of Jewish poetry, welter and waste. Their examples above do not describe material nothingness. They describe wilderness and wasteland. They describe the absence of civilization. They describe nature taking its course with animals and vegetation taking over. That's not material nothingness. That's natural disorder. It's chaos. So Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 describes a world that is inhospitable wild, unsafe, unpredictable. That's really what formless and empty means, not some nebulous ball of gas, but a world that is not fit for human habitation. Not set up how God wanted it yet. When you think of it that way, a world full of lands, waters, darkness and depths might not be the absence of material, but in that state of chaos, it certainly isn't useful for humans. And that is what makes everything technically nothing until God gets to work. Thank you, Tim, as always. So that's the end of uh, our study for this episode. But before we wrap, would you like to talk about this gap theory? Oh, boy, the gap theory thing. Oh, 
I don't, I don't want to twist your arm. Well, you know, someone's bound to mention it if you don't. So we'll, we'll tackle this anyway. You know, I, I do get annoyed with this one because it doesn't have a, a shred of evidence to support the actual claim. The evidence gap theorists produce in favour of gap theory is not evidence of a pre-Adamic race of angelic civilization or proof that Satan fell before creation weak. It's just an attempt to maintain both a literalist, materialist view of the text uh, as found in evangelical fundamentalism in the face of the evidence that the earth is in fact older than 6,000 years. You've got to fit that extra time in somewhere and if you can't find a gap because of literalism then make one. The gap theory view of creation has a long history. Certain church fathers believed that there appeared to be a possible gap in time between 1 verse 1 and 1 verse 2 bolstered by the notion that a perfect God would not create an imperfect world. You get a lot of people just kind of assume these theories. Yeah. Um, it just takes someone to sort of try and create a different interpretation of the scripture so that their theology works for them and it opens up a huge can of worms. Yeah. Uh, I've heard, yeah, countless people, especially talking about this whole uh, subject matter of the giants and all the rest of it. They, they get interested in the giants and then they want to sort of find an origin story, you know, and they sort of try and trace it back as far as they can. Yeah. And, you know, we've got the serpent in the garden and then you've got to say, well, was he already a bad guy at that point? Why was he there? How come he was allowed to be there? I thought it was supposed to be a good place. And, you know, so at what point did he become a bad guy and all this kind of thing. And so trying to reconcile those questions with certain doctrinal elements like this idea that, you know, God does everything perfectly and then it's our idea of perfect, not God's idea of perfect. Mm. Um, then we have to say, well, you know, we've got to find some time period in which things went bad. can't really see it in the text, so we're looking for a little gap somewhere where we can squeeze it in and say, right, well, that must have been where it was happening. Um, because, you know, I've got this little opening. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, you kind of have to ignore the, the grammar and everything to make it work. And yep. it does work if you're reading an English Bible, but it doesn't work if you're reading Hebrew. The view was perhaps most recently championed by one Arthur Custance back in the 1970s. I actually had someone review Answers to Giant Questions in the early manuscript stage who said that my book was the best thing they'd read since Custance. I wasn't going to tell them that I don't subscribe to Custance's view. <laughs> the reason I don't uh, should be fairly obvious from the examination of the biblical text we just did. Verse 1 is not separated at all from verse 2. And it's the correct reading of that opening phrase that makes it obvious. You don't start a conversation with, at the start I drove to the bank, now the tellers were all busy. You see how that grammatical construction makes it look like something's missing in the middle. What changed between my drive to the bank and when the tellers were busy? But if I say, when I drove to the bank, the tellers were all busy, we see that there never was a gap. At this point, we ought to consider the term beginning the Hebrew term Bereshit. 
what constitutes a beginning? Is it a single point in time, like the moment of the Big Bang or the snap of Thanos' fingers? According to biblical usage of the same term, the beginning of Zedekiah's reign in Judah was when Hananiah prophesied to the king. This was in the fourth year of his reign, according to Jeremiah 28.1. So at least four years is still in the beginning. What this tells us is that the process of creation, according to Genesis 1, occurred in the initial period of time that our story is primarily concerned with, that being a whole week. Over the course of that week, the earth was transformed from formless and empty to very good, as the NIV puts it. That's an uninterrupted process of creation from beginning to end. Not a good start followed by a disaster that had to be repaired. But that doesn't mean that everything in creation was good. Later we're going to find a number of examples of things in Genesis 1 that were not good. But that's another episode. Now we can see that a gap theory is grammatically untenable and that Hebrew usage of the term Bereshit covers a period rather than a point in time. In fact, that period need not necessarily be the beginning of time. Stay tuned for a future episode very soon when we'll address that. So there's a possibility that stuff happened before creation week and this text doesn't concern itself with that. I know people will be thinking about that original premise put forth by some church fathers that God does everything perfectly and saying, well, surely that perfection means that in verse 1, when God created the heavens and the earth, he did it perfectly and there was nothing wrong with it and it was complete and it was finished and everything was good and it has to be because God does everything perfectly. There's a problem. We're interjecting with our theology without God uh, being allowed to finish what he's saying to us. It's good theology to have, but it needs to be in its proper place. You don't interrupt. The word of God is speaking. You be quiet. You listen. You're taking the word of God out of context by filtering it through theology. When he's finished speaking, you can have your theology. The author begins his sentence and you're interrupting. Let him finish and then you'll see that God's works are perfect. Don't make trouble by cutting in. We're so focused on the perfection that we've forgotten the process. The gap theory causes a problem by interrupting before God has been allowed to speak, and that's a big problem. It assumes that a process that God undertook over a week should have been done with a snap of the fingers before it even started. I, I guess what I'm saying, maybe we need to look further back than customs to find the best book written for answers to giant questions. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Make, make sure you tune in next week uh, when we're going to be talking about God, other gods, and mysterious giant structures. Ooh. Well, it's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of TJ's book, Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or on Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that, that will help. But a full review is better and certainly very, very much appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. And in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also on the lookout for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful of course this podcast comes out every week 
that you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, please do that now and you'll get notified when every new episode drops. And that's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Gratefulsaken, gratefulsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon, paperback format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com. Go to giantanswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Print the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Friends of the Show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to the podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. God bless.